Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Daniel Andrews, and let's get that sporting fix. So let's go to cricket first. So obviously the Ashes is going on at the moment, huge contest over in England. So the Aussies have managed to squeak out a 2-0 lead here, despite baseball being the next big thing, apparently. Hasn't helped England too much, though, uh, going down 2-0, as I said. But unfortunately, the biggest talking point out of the second test at Lords was actually uh, a run out or a stumping, perhaps. <laughs> so I'm sure many of you have heard about this who are into cricket. Uh, essentially, game is in the balance. England five wickets down, still requiring 170 runs, but well within the uh, possibilities here with Ben Stokes still at the crease. But uh, Johnny Bairstow, uh, in a sort of a brain explosion, or maybe not because he'd been doing this earlier in the over and I think at different points in time too, uh, just sort of starts to walk down the pitch and in one motion, uh, Alex Carey behind the stumps has taken the ball after a ball from Cameron Green and uh, flings it at the stumps and lo and behold, it hits the stumps and the Aussies appeal, rejoice and get their last important wicket that uh, they need to actually, you know, break through and get rid of the last recognised batsman. And at that point, it looks like Australia's game. But yeah, all hell broke loose here, to say the least. So uh, they send the, uh, you know, the decision up to the third umpire to check that, in fact, Bursta was out of his ground. And, uh, you know, the Aussies are jubilant and it comes up on the scoreboard out. And, uh, yeah, as you can imagine, the English crowd and even the players were sort of dumbfounded by this. So I suppose to give a bit of context here, you know, one side of the argument is that, you know, Besto thinks the ball is dead and therefore he can walk out of his crease with uh, no uh, consequences. But if you actually look at the laws of the game it says that the ball is only dead when both teams have accepted it's dead. So obviously if Carey is throwing the ball towards the stumps, then he hasn't accepted that the ball is dead. And the fact that he did it in one motion, the umpire hadn't called over, it's a legitimate form of dismissal and uh, you know it's really on best. So uh, the English commentator, I'm not sure it was on the coverage I was watching, uh, basically I think he described it as uh, a dozy thing to do or yeah, really just a silly, uh, mindless thing to do. And uh, yes, it didn't stop <clears throat> the England captain and coach and uh, Broad and everyone else getting very upset about this and, uh, you know, invoking the spirit of cricket. And, you know, it's not within the spirit of the cricket to, you know, uh, dismiss someone like this and all these sorts of things. And, you know, if it was us, we wouldn't have done it. And despite the fact that a couple of days earlier they were doing exactly the same thing but you know didn't end up in a wicket so there's a bit of hypocrisy at work here so yeah even the pms have had their say so yeah i guess the question i had was you know is it an international incident or is it just whinging palms and i guess maybe it does go to the fact that you know people are raised you know with different cricket traditions in england to australia uh and you know it's a bit more ruthless maybe in australia and i don't think Anyone uh, in Australia would see this as a problem. <laughs> I know it's generalising a little bit, but, uh, you know, if the shoe was on the other foot and, you know, uh, David Warner had started to walk down the crease and he'd been run out, I don't think there would have been as much furor. Like, for sure, you know, people would have been annoyed and maybe unhappy with it, but 
it wouldn't have gone nuclear as we've seen in the immediate aftermath where the crowd was just going crazy and sort of Stokes and Broad really sort of playing out to the crowd, making it seem like they had been wronged and all this sort of stuff. I don't think that level of, uh, you know, dissension would have happened if the shoe was on the other foot, but it did make for some great theatre. And basically as soon as this happened, Stokes went into sort of his God mode where, uh, yeah, reprising Headingley from 2019 where, he basically just looks like a superhuman at the cricket crease. He's knocking the ball over the fence for fun, even though everyone's back on the rope. It was just crazy. It just did not look like he could get out, no matter what sort of shot he was going for. It's almost like he's just turned into this like superhuman presence that can just sort of do anything. And he didn't even look like getting out. I know eventually he was dropped, I think, a couple of times. But by that point, he'd already put on a crazy number of runs and... It's just amazing for someone to keep middling it and uh, going for these audacious shots. But in the end, the Australians get the result. Uh, he eventually, uh, Stokes eventually skies one from Josh Hazelwood and uh, they pick up the tail without too much problem, end up winning that by 43 runs. So yes, Australia looking the goods, perhaps to win an Ashes series in England uh, for the first time since 2001. And Around that time, it was a very regular occurrence that they'd be winning Ashes series because, you know, that was sort of the golden generation, uh, Taylor, McGrath, Warren, Ponting, etc., etc. And uh, they gave England hiding, hiding for probably a good sort of 10 to 15 years over that period. But yeah, England's done very well at home. Uh, but, you know, the choice to play baseball and, you know, flatten out the wickets, perhaps it's backfired, perhaps not. But I guess it just comes back to, you know, Australia is a more solid, well-rounded team at the moment. And, uh, you know, England is still doing a lot right, but uh, just not quite getting over the line when it matters most. So there's the cricket. Let's head across to Wimbledon. So as many of you will know, uh, Wimbledon is the most prestigious tournament on the tennis calendar, one of the four Grand Slams. So Novak Djokovic, he's had a mortgage over... Uh, Wimbledon the last few years and he's actually won the first two Grand Slams as well so he's on track for the calendar Grand Slam that no one has done since Rod Laver I think that might have been in the late 50s or early 60s so it's almost unthinkable in today's world that someone can actually do this but just shows how good Djokovic at age 36 or so he's sort of in line to do this and looking at the men's draw there's really not a lot of threats to him on paper Carlos Alcaraz, definitely the number one seed on the other side of the draw, having won Queens as a lead-in. Definitely not his preferred surface. I think he would prefer to play on the clay or hard courts, but he's learning uh, to adapt to the grass as well. And we saw how that ended at the French Open when they clashed in that massive semi-final. And I guess Alcaraz basically just couldn't quite handle the moment and uh, his body let him down, all that tension manifested in full body cramps and Djokovic had another victim there on his way to winning that Grand Slam. So is it a race in two? Perhaps, perhaps, but you know, there's, they each got to win six matches to get there. A lot can happen, you know, defaults, that's happened to Novak before. Uh, I think Alcaraz is definitely the more vulnerable in his side of the draw. Uh, and I think there's some bigger threats on that side as well. So yeah, a lot of the men's players just aren't really that suited to playing on grass. So a guy like Daniel Medvedev, 
much more suited to the hard courts. Uh, some of the other, you know, top seeds like Yannick Sinner hasn't really done much on grass. And it's a similar story with a lot of the others. So I think the field really does narrow <coughs> now that they're, you know, playing on grass as opposed to the hard courts or the clay of Roland Garros. Let's quickly talk about the women's draw. So there we've got the top seed, Iga Schiontek, uh coming off a French Open win. And it is incredibly hard to back up from that French Open win. Uh, if you look back through history, it's really only the absolute greats who have been able to manage the French Open Wimbledon double. So Nadal did it. Uh, I think Djokovic has been able to do it. Uh, perhaps, you know, Navratilova going back. But it's really not something that happens too often. And uh, I guess Fiontek has a chance to rewrite history. Uh, she chose to take a bit of a break, so didn't have a lot of, uh, you know, lead into the tournament. But uh, looking good after his first match, no trouble there. So uh, bigger tests to come. So who else is there or thereabouts in the women's draw? So it's really been the uh, Rabakina and and Zabalenka show really outside of uh, Shiontek this year. So it was Shiontek winning the French uh, after Rabakina had to withdraw with a viral illness that's caused her a lot of problems. But Zabalenka had uh, won the Australian Open in an epic match against uh, Rabakina as well. So that was a fantastic high-standard match. Both women just absolutely crushing the ball. If you have the chance to go back and look at some of the highlights of that, it was absolutely amazing. So some people have been calling this sort of the big three. Uh, it's maybe the beginnings of that. We haven't really had a big three in the women's or a big four or anything like that. So uh, interesting uh, times there. But it's been great that, you know, getting a few more of these rivalries forming because I guess that's one thing with a lot of these uh, women's draws. Often they do sort of break and a lot of the bigger names go out early and it really deprives us of the opportunity to, you know, get these big rivalries happening. So uh, all three are really primed to have, you know, give it a good go at Wimbledon. So hopefully uh, at some point we can get some of these uh, players meeting as well. So... Ons Jabeur, who made the final last year, she hasn't been in as good a form, but uh, the surface does sort of seem to suit her wily game using the different spins and the slice, so uh, perhaps she might be a threat as well. Uh, Coco Goff has already gone out, the number seven seed. Uh, Kennan, a former Australian Open champion, got it the better of her in three sets there, and yeah, the forehand is the weakness uh, for Coco Goff, so time will tell whether she's able to fix that one. All right, so we've done uh, a couple of sports there. Let's quickly talk about the NBA. So it's off-season, obviously, the Denver Nuggets having broken through for their first championship and uh, accounting for the Miami Heat, who uh, only managed to win the one game there in the finals. But at the moment, it's all about uh, what players you can get in... Uh, in the draft and also in through, uh, you know, free agency and all these types of things. So uh, the big news this week is Damian Lillard, who's been with the Portland Trailblazers for a very long time, kind of the face of the team, uh, been with them through thick and thin, dominant player, absolute marvel on the three-point shot. He has finally asked out to another team. Uh, this was the, the writing for this was on the wall, uh, you know, these type of guys in the NBA really want to be competing for championships and Portland really wasn't anywhere near it. But 
Dame was such a loyal guy that he just never really even uh, seemed to consider this, or at least not outwardly, and he really wanted to stick it out with the Trailblazers for as long as he could. But they're really going in the other direction now, so they've gone back to the draft to really build for the future. And, you know, as I said, he wants to be competing for championships, so he has asked out, and, uh, you know, no one deserves it more than him, I think, like... You know, this is the world of the NBA where people can break contracts at the drop of a hat and, you know, so much player movement that, uh, you know, is strengthening certain teams and really creating very weak teams elsewhere. So it's the, you know, the super teams and they are trying to do a few things to combat this in terms of uh, certain tax thresholds for how much you can actually pay your team and all this sort of stuff. I don't understand it that much, but it is interesting. It's an interesting world in the NBA, the amount of player movement and leverage and it's kind of just crazy but yeah we great to see uh you know where he lands and hopefully he does get onto the contender and that'll make the 2023 slash four season a very interesting one so let's finish off with a little bit of afl chat so we've just come to the conclusion of round 16 in the afl mercifully the buy rounds are well behind us now uh, had the first completed round in a little while. And it very much looks like we have uh, the Collingwood Magpies and the Port Adelaide Power separating themselves from the rest of the competition. So they've opened up quite a gap on the rest of the competition now. We've got uh, Collingwood having banked the 13 wins and just the two losses, and Port Adelaide the same, 13 wins and two losses, now in a 12-match winning streak after accounting for Essendon at the MCG with a booming kick from Dan Houston after the siren from about uh, five metres in from the boundary. So it was an amazing sight seeing five bomber players go up and try and touch that one on the line, but it did just carry it. So Collingwood 2 were super impressive up in the Gold Coast and giving Gold Coast an absolute hiding there. So, uh, yes, Stewie Jew may not be long for this world in terms of his coaching gig. So... The reason, a few reasons why they may, beyond the fact that they've only lost a pair of games each for the whole season, there's just not really that much completeness to the teams that are nipping at their heels. Uh, the Lions, probably the most impressive of the rest. They have had their 11 wins, but they have been quite flaky away, and uh, their record at the MCG still haunts them. Uh, the defence has been better this year, but... Uh, Yes, still question marks there. And uh, yeah, I wouldn't be backing them against either Port or Collingwood at the moment in the finals, but perhaps, you know, they can catch fire. So Lions are probably the easiest one to make a, uh, you know, a case for. And then it goes uh, to teams like Melbourne, St Kilda and the the Bulldogs, who all have their problems at the moment. Melbourne has been rife with inaccuracy at the moment, not being able to get any clean play going, very low uh, disposal efficiency and low conversion in front of goal. It's been pretty hard watch, actually, as a Melbourne supporter. And then you've got St Kilda sort of falling off a little bit as well, having started the season so well. And the Dogs, I think, maybe are coming out of their little trough. So, And then you've got some of the more attacking teams like Adelaide and Essendon. So there's a few around the mark, but no one uh, seems to be playing at the level of Collingwood or Port at the moment. And I know premierships are not won in June or July, but at this stage, something quite drastic would have to happen for 
these teams not to finish one on two on the ladder and uh, they would be odds on to make it through to the grand final if that is the case. So thanks for uh, tuning in to have a bit of a uh, delve into the worlds of uh, tennis, NBA, AFL and even a bit of cricket. Not quite sure how regularly these episodes will come out, but uh, yeah, it's just a nice way, a point in time to try and uh, put the craziness of the sporting world through the eyes or through my eyes out there. And uh, hopefully you enjoyed having a bit of a listen and a bit of a recap on some of the goings on in the sporting world. Bye for now.